Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, and we continue in our study in the book of Ephesians, and we come to the last few verses, the last four verses of, the, of chapter 2 of Ephesians. The last four verses of uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And as you turn there, um, I want to remind us of where we have come from Ephesians in chapter 2. I mean, we could go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 1, this glorious song of praise and everything that God has done. But chapter 2 in particularly begins to highlight what makes us Christians, what, what gives us a common ground. What makes us brothers and sisters in the Lord to one another as well as children of God. Chapter 2 is about the gospel. And if you recall, in fact, you could just kind of scan your eyes upward. You'll remember that chapter 2 begins with the idea that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That without Christ, that we are literally the walking dead. But that it was his immeasurable grace and kindness towards us. And that he has sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of our sins once and for all, canceling our debt so we might be holy, we might be his. Not because we ourselves have earned or deserved it, but because his grace is more than sufficient. That's what we call the gospel. That's the good news. So individually, that has rescued us from death and sin to eternal life and victory. The death of Jesus Christ Um, His substitutionary atonement, the fact that we are cleansed from all our unrighteousness and we are covered in his righteousness, that's the good news. So individually, it means good news for us. But corporately, as a people, it means that he has taken enemies and outsiders and made us a new humanity of redeemed followers of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel does both. Individually, it rescues us from our sins and gives us sonship with our Heavenly Father. But corporately, it binds us together into one people, a new people. No longer Jews, no longer Gentiles. And and let's let's understand this correctly. It doesn't mean that because they have become Christians, they are no longer with any kind of cultural heritage. They're no longer Jewish. It doesn't mean that they are no longer Romans or or I I don't know what, what they were in those days, right? other peoples, right, Um, Gentiles. They they have their cultures. They have their their social kind of uh, constructed identities. Nevertheless, what comes first is that they're no longer Jewish Christians. They're Christians who happen to be Jewish. They're they're not Romans that are on the side Christians, occasionally Christians. They are Christians. That's their main identity. And occasionally or, or incidentally, They're also Roman by background, by culture, etc. And what binds them together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, these last few verses in Ephesians 2, as we looked at them, um, will speak to that idea of being bound together into one household. It it is about belonging to God's household. And I'll give you kind of a quick overview of where we're going. I think chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, speaks of the transition, our transition, from being aliens and strangers to God's people. And in the verses 20 through the first part of 21, talks about God and how he has built this household, right, on the, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And finally, how that becomes then, we become then, right, corporately, um, the place of God's dwelling. This is, this is how Paul, I, I guess, the pinnacle of what he's building up the gospel to be. The gospel is the message of salvation to those that are walking dead, to give them eternal life, to give them forgiveness, to give them joy and worship and purpose. But it's not just individuals that God has saved. He saved individuals into a group. And in that group, right, which is the group of the redeemed, the church, God has desired to have his presence, his fellowship, have his connection, with his people, with his children. And I think that's what what we're talking about. So belonging to God's household. Let me read you these verses. In fact, just uh, um, why don't we read from uh, verse verse 11 to give us the whole context. And verse 19 through 22 is going to be our main passage this morning. Starting in verse 11. 
Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to the scriptures this morning, Lord, may we continue in our attitude of worship and celebration for the good things that you have done, for your grace, your your mercy, and your love extended to those that cannot deserve or earn it, but because you are a God that is loving, merciful, steadfast in his love, you have granted us salvation in Jesus Christ. But Lord, so that we, we don't lose track of the purpose of your, your grace towards us. May we look to glorify you, to, to make it known among the nations, among those that are around us, in our own souls, that we are saved for a purpose, to glorify our Savior, to, to demonstrate what grace looks like, to prove that the power of the gospel is sufficient, for sinners and wicked men and women like us. And that you have brought us to yourself. You have brought us together to yourself so that we might become your household. We praise you for that truth. May it resonate to our souls. And may we think of new and wonderful ways that we can encourage one another because that would bring you glory. Thank you for our salvation and the life that we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we think about uh, what it means to belong in God's household, I I would say this. There's a difference between being accepted, right? Um, I'm sorry. There's a difference between being allowed entrance, right, and being accepted. In other words, there's a difference between having access, that's the word I was looking for, and acceptance, right? Like like I have a, a Costco membership. It gives me access to Costco, right? I can go into Costco. I show my membership card. They let me in. They let me buy stuff, etc. I am a member of the Costco family, you know? Get to buy Costco stuff using my membership card. That doesn't mean, though, that I could go in and just say, you know what? The sample carts aren't out, so I'm just going to sample this right here. I'm going to try it right now, right? Oh, they got nice grills. I'm going to start one up and start cooking some of the steaks because I just feel at home. There's a difference between having membership or having something that allows you access to something or a difference between that and being part of a household. You know, maybe my last name, if I was Nam Kirkland, maybe I could actually like go in and I, I don't know if... I think Kirkland's actually a place. I think that's the headquarters, right? But if, if, I, if, I, if I owned Costco, if I was part of the actual household of Costco, I could go in and I could take whatever, whenever. There's a huge difference, right? It's a difference between visiting someone's home and going home. And this is the point. That when the church is in view in the book of Ephesians, it is with, right, with the background of the gospel and the message of salvation, and then from there, it is saying that we belong. Christian, if you have placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, you belong. You belong to him. You belong to us. You belong in the we. And all of us have begun on the outside 
And we are, now we are on the inside. We begin far off and we have been brought near into becoming God's people. And that's what verse 19 is about. It's about the transition, right, of these individuals from strangers to people that might have had some access to God's family, to God's people. We start in verse 19. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There's three different things that it speaks of. The first is that we are no longer outsiders, right? So then it says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. It suggests that chapter 2 has been building up to this crescendo. This is where Paul's been trying to take us. With all the gospel message that he has given to us at that point. I mean, some of the greatest statements about what it means that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone has been made in the earlier part of chapter 2. And he's saying, so then based on that, Understand this, you're no longer strangers and aliens. Strangers um, um, is a term that is built on that, that word um, xenon, which means foreigner or outsider. It means that you're someone on the outside, you're far away, right? And we know our term, you know, maybe you just know it from like SAT class or something, but xenophobia. It's a fear of the outsiders, of foreigners, people that are unlike you, Right? This is where that term comes from. The idea of someone being a stranger, someone that's far off, someone that doesn't belong here. They, they happen to be, you know, they happen to be here, but it's clear that something about them tells you that they don't belong. And that's the point of that term. You don't belong. The second term, aliens, it, it uses a word that means to, to sojourn or to pass by. Um, the word literally is built on the idea that you are a dweller, but you are a dweller on that side, a side dweller. You know what I mean? Meaning that you're not, you're not part of us. You live in the other side of the tracks. You live in a different community. You're, you're, you're not part of us. You're on the other side of a border. And that's the come when we speak of aliens. I know you guys think, right, aliens, right? But, but usually the term initial, uh, initially and still is, is used when we talk about social political kind of terms, it is used of someone that is on the other side of a border, right? They are citizens of another nation. And Paul is not saying, he's not saying that you were never these things. He's saying you were these things. You are just these no longer. You're not far off outsiders, strangers. You're, you're not people from a distant land. Right? They happen to be passing by. Right? Aliens. You, you now belong here. And I always think about like uh, the extent of what God does in grace because it would be kind of the Lord if He just gave us access. Right? If He said, okay, you know, you guys are always strangers, you guys are always aliens, but I tell you what you can have access. You can go to the outer, right? The outer prayer court of the temple. You could come there, right? You come to church, but you have to be in the overflow, right? You don't get to come into the main thing, right? Like, like he could give, it would still be a kindness if God did something for us to give us a membership into something. But see, that's the point. If it stopped right there after that phrase, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, period, and that was all there was to it, then you get the sense that God has done much for us and we've got to fill in the gaps. We've got to earn the rest. We've got to figure out how to get from you know, the, the outside room, the overflow, into the main sanctuary. How to get from the guest house right, into the mansion. We've got to figure out how to move closer and get nearer to the God that has saved us. We have to do that. We have this on our plate and agenda. That's not where scripture stops. It doesn't just give us access. It says it has so much more. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes us, takes us from being strangers and aliens, which we were. But it says you are that no longer. Instead, you have now transitioned, it says, to becoming fellow citizens. But, this is the second part of verse 19, you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're fellow citizens with the saints. It uses a social political terminology here to say that we are citizens. And you guys know what that means uh, to some degree because we have in our country an idea of citizenship. 
it means that we are tied <clears throat> by allegiance and by, you know, by paying taxes or, or being in submission to a particular group that is our government or our country. We have citizenship. It, it, was, it, it is something that is based on the ancient world. In fact, the Roman world, remember the Romans dominate the world at this particular time when the New Testament is written. They're the ones that really perfected the concept of citizenship. Right? It was very significant for you to be a citizen of a city, a state, a nation, an empire. Because the idea was that if you are a citizen, like a Roman citizen, you are eligible for certain rights and protections. We live in a country, right, where your human rights are supposed to be guaranteed you, regardless of whether or not you're a citizen, right? You're a resident alien, you're, you're an illegal alien, you're visiting from another country, whatever it is, whatever your particular status is, you're nevertheless afforded at least some coverage. See, not in the Roman world. In the Roman world, if you're a Roman citizen, you had a right to a trial. They had to tell you, right, similar to our laws, which are kind of based on their laws. You had a right to a trial. You had a right to know what the charges are against you. You had a right to make an appeal in a court, etc. If you weren't a citizen, you could just be beaten in the streets. It's up to the city magistrate or whoever's in charge of that particular area that you're in. In fact, in Acts 16, that's exactly what happens to Paul. Remember? Um, he gets jailed. The magistrates beat them, and then, you know, they have them, you know, thrown in jail. And then after a while, they say, okay, you can go. And then when they say you can go, in Acts 16, 37, Paul says to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. See, there's a fear that fell on the magistrates because they thought, oh, we, we thought you were just like normal Jewish people that aren't Roman citizens. If you're Roman citizens, then we, could, we could get in trouble. And so they were very apologetic and wanted Paul to just leave quickly so they can get on with their lives. Citizenship meant something then, and it means something now. It means different things in different societies and different countries. But here, biblically, talking about the redeemed, you are now fellow citizens. You were once strangers and aliens. You were outsiders and from another country. But now you are fellow citizens. And, and I think our English translation does a good job of this. Fellow citizens, that's really translated one word, Right? In the Greek, you can add a prefix to a word to kind of, kind of tell you which direction or give it a deeper flavor. And the idea of adding soon means that it is your joint citizen, a fellow citizen, an equal citizen. It means you are citizens just like all the other citizens. In particular, you are a fellow or joint citizen with the saints, with the holy ones. Who does that refer to? All the saints of the Old Testament. People that you might have forgotten about. But all those that have been redeemed by God throughout all of human history, you are part of that society. You're part of that group. So you go from strangers and aliens to being part of this citizenship. And it goes even deeper, right? The third one. Go from fellow citizens to family members. I read in this kind of a progression, Right? That you go from no longer this to becoming citizens. You belong here in a political, social way to God's household. You become family members in more than a political, social way. In a very personal and corporate way. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. As good as it may be to be part of a community of citizens that are connected to the redeemed, connected to God in heaven, even more intimately are we included into God's household. In fact, the, the term household, uh, household um, oikos, it, it happens as a verbal form, as a noun form, about six times in verses 19 to 22. Aliens, right? It means that you are, uh, you're outside or you are, you are on the side of or otherly households, right? 
members of a household. That's a term that's built on the idea of oikos. That you are built, right, built upon. It means that you are edified, you are epi, right? You are grown into a household. Um, a building is a word that is, comes from the concept of a house or household. Built together, again, uses that, that terminology of oikos, that you are <clears throat> Together, built in or edified into something that is a household. And a dwelling place is the, is the intensified form of where you live, right? All of these is to emphasize that, that this is where God has been going with our, our salvation. This is where God has intended. God hasn't intended for you to be saved so that you can live your life kind of free of guilt and just do whatever you want independently, the intention seems to be that you have transitioned being, being outsiders and strangers and aliens, right? To coming into his nation, his kingdom, his people as fellow citizens, but now also as his family, as members of his household. We are members of the household of God. In 1 Timothy 5, um, Paul instructs Christians when they're trying to rebuke older men to treat them as fathers. And then he goes on to talk about how you also treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. This is where we develop this concept of calling each other brother. Hey, what's up, brother? Right? We're talking about another Christian brother because they are like family. In fact, they are meant to be better than your dysfunctional family because we all come from dysfunctional families. Right? This is the you are welcome here. This isn't the, you know, my family's kind of weird. We always have that weird uncle. Everyone has that weird uncle, right? We, we all got like weird people in our families. That's, that's normal. But here in the church, we are accepted. We are embraced. This is where you belong. Yeah, do you make mistakes? Yes. Do you make bad choices? Mm-hmm. You ever commit sins? Yes. But we together have the commonness of trusting in Christ and him alone. And as a result of that, we are tied together one to another in the body of Christ. See, it's not just terminology that says, right, the Lord could have stopped. I told you he could have stopped that we're no longer outsiders. And that would be fair, right? That would be kind. We, we are now fellow citizens, and that would be exceptional. That's good. We are members. We have membership. We have citizenship into God's house, Right? But he goes beyond that. We are now family members. We are with him. <clears throat> 1 John 1, 4-7 says this. We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. And this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You see the weird logical sequence there? You would think that it would say, if we walk in, if God is light, there's no darkness in him. If we say that we have fellowship with him, but we walk in the darkness, we're liars. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, and you would naturally expect logically in that sequence of thought, we have fellowship with him. But instead it says, as he is in the light, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us, first person plural, us, from all sin. We are meant to be corporately connected. We are meant to be family members. We are meant to call him our one heavenly father and Jesus Christ our savior. And then to know each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what ties us together. Remember that great song that comes from 1 John 3, 1? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. You know that song? We should teach that song. It's a good VBS song, right? The second part is that we should be called the sons of God. That we should be called the sons of God. This is the kind of manner that God's love has been displayed in terms of the cross, in terms of the work of Jesus to redeem us. This is, the, behold, this is the manner of the love of, of the Father, right, for us, that we would be called his children. The point is, if you are a fellow believer, 
You belong here. You belong to us. You're not just a visitor, right? You belong because it's not just your political standing as a citizen. It's not just your, you know, your salvation standing as redeemed in Christ. You are like us. You are family. And so all of this points to the fact that we have transitioned in the most magnificent and glorious way from being on the outside, no longer outsiders, fellow citizens, and now family members. And I think there's a transition of coming closer and closer to the things of the Lord. And having spoken of household then, we go from the transition, our transition, from being strangers to being God's people, his sons, his daughters. And then now he starts to speak of the foundation of God's household in verse 20 and 21. There it says, this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The first thing about the foundation of God's household is that the scriptures tell us that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, the word order is significant because if we met, it's based on the Old Testament prophets and then the New Testament apostles, which, you know, which isn't weird if that's what, you know, the scriptures wanted to say. Then you would expect it to say the prophets, right, the Old Testament prophets, and then now the New Testament apostles. But instead, it says the apostles and the prophets, which tells us that Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that it's a categorical group of apostles and prophets. New Testament apostles. New Testament prophets, they are the foundation of the building up of this household, or we might take a shortcut and say they are the foundation of what is built up into the church of Jesus Christ. It is based on the foundational work of the apostles and the prophets, right? And let me say a couple of things about that. Uh, foundation is kind of the, 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 the bottom. It's, in fact, every building has a foundation. It's that first layer that is supposed to secure the rest. If your foundation is messed up, the whole building is messed up. How do you know the foundation is messed up? Well, because after a while, there'll be cracks in the foundation. If there's cracks in the foundation, you know what happens? There'll eventually be cracks in the wall. So I, I know I'm not an architect. I'm not a scientist. I'm not even good at math. Right? I often say numbers incorrectly when, when, I try to, when I try to add. Right? But nevertheless, right? imagine that we are building a building and we lay a foundation. And we think, ah, we, it's no big deal. We don't have to level stuff. It'll level itself. You know? Let's just pour cement, make kind of a rectangular thing and put up walls. You, know, you could do that. Right? And for the most part, it would last for a while. But the bigger the structure, see, look at our structure here. Right? The bigger the structure, the more it requires to kind of sustain its weight. These huge rafters and this huge ceiling has to be supported by these huge walls and a firm foundation. If the foundation is not firm, is not good, is not helpful, is not strong, leveled, everything, then as it begins to kind of, you know, shift a little bit, then the cracks appear. And if the cracks appear, then the weight of the roof becomes somewhat unbalanced. And it's a matter of time before the thing either crumbles or breaks or things, uh, there's a fissure, right? There's, there's breaking points and openings. Foundation is very important. And what, what I think the scriptures are trying to say is the church has been established. Its foundation is on the ministry of the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament. Well, why would those particular offices lay a foundation for the church? Because those particular offices, those particular ministries were a ministry of God's scripture. It's a ministry of God's word, right? They spoke revelatory, revelatory truth. In other words, they spoke on behalf of God, thus saith the Lord. That's what the prophets of the Old Testament do. That's what the prophets of the New Testament do. That's what the apostles did. The apostles write the scriptures. They give us God's word. And so the ministry of God's word is really what sets the foundation. Not the prophets and the apostles themselves, like as if, you know, they're holding the church up, like the atlas. The idea is it's their ministry, it's their office. It's what they have done. They've established the church on God's word. And because of that, everything flowing from faith to church to the exercise of our faith, the gospel itself, it all flows from understanding the word of God 
preached and proclaimed through the scriptures, through God's word. And, and before the New Testament is canonized, before we have the completed scriptures in written form, you have a ministry of apostles and prophets. They're foundational. Can I say this? You don't keep laying foundation. Because let's say that we talked about foundation. We're like, hey, man, remember Pastor Nam was talking about foundations? We want to do this right. So we're going to do one foundation, then we'll do another foundation. Then another foundation. We're going to do like 15 foundations so that so you don't have a building. You just have a solid block, right? You don't lay foundation more than once. There's one foundation and that's it. So the fact that the scriptures illustrate that the church is founded, the foundation is poured on the ministry of the apostles and the prophets suggests that it is meant to be that initial, that initial foundation. And I think that's why historically, in terms of church history, the ministry of apostles and prophets have ceased. It's not until this century, what is it this century still? Early 20th century. Is that last century? It's confusing to me, man. The whole thing of how you count centuries, right? It's not until like the early 1900s that the idea that there are still apostles or prophets are introduced into the church, or at least into some segments of the church. This is done. They laid the foundation, and their foundation was a proclamation of God's word and scripture. Don't ever dial down what, what Romans 10 talks about when it's the, there's a necessity of someone preaching, right? And that that preacher needs to be sent. But one of the things that it says there, Romans 10, 17, we need to remember this. So faith, how, how does faith come? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. There, there is no faith in the gospel without the gospel being tied to the message of Scripture. It is God's word that produces life in human beings because faith comes from hearing Scripture, from hearing God's word. The point is that the family, right, the church family, the redeemed household is built on a foundation of proclamation of truth. We say this often and we should say this always. The main reason why Christians, you ought to teach your kids how to read is not so that they can get into a good college and they can make some money, etc. Those are, those are good and excellent side benefits, I imagine. But that's because we have a written scripture. We have a canonized text. And our, our capacity to understand what scripture says is literally our capacity to know what God says to us about the gospel, about salvation, about sin, about life, about forgiveness. Everything that we might set our minds around in terms of who God is and what he has done, it's encapsulated in written words. That's what we need to learn, right? We need to teach. Um, and when we say we learn and teach, we always mean not by a feeling, right? Not by osmosis. We mean we learn and we teach and we grow through the knowledge of God in his scriptures. This is the foundation of the church made through the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. But there's another thing that we could never bypass. And that's that second part of verse 20. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It is the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. Now, see, this, this is one that will kind of escape us a little bit because we don't do much by way of cornerstone in our modern buildings. Right? In fact, Usually the cornerstone, like, you know, I don't know if you guys noticed, but this church has like a little, um, I don't know, a little plaque kind of thing that is embedded on the side of the building. I think it's over there. And it says like when the church was built, et cetera. It's kind of a cool thing. And a lot of large buildings, even if you go to like, like big, you know, metropolitan places like New York, you see the Empire State Building, you look and there'll be a cornerstone, something etched, right? As, as that first stone after the foundation is laid, that first stone that they put in. It's because that's the way that we do it, right? We, we, it's a more of a memorial stone. It's not necessary for the way that we build our structures today. But back in those days, the cornerstone was a central feature. You're going to make a foundation, but you begin with the cornerstone. In fact, the cornerstone, you usually need a big stone. That determines, right? That determines the lines. That determines the weight-bearing. That cornerstone determines everything about how long and how strong that structure will last. 
See, today it's more of kind of like, hey, let's get this stone in the corner and let's put our name on it or let's put the date on it. But back in those days, it was everything. So that the prophecies concerning Jesus being the cornerstone, Isaiah 28, 16 says this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone. That's a good one. Tested stone meaning that this is where like all the lines flow out of. It has been tested and it has been precisely measured. A precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And it says this, whoever believes will not be in haste. It's talking about the prophecy of the Christ, of the Messiah, and how he will be a precious cornerstone. Tested, perfect in its, its lines and the right kind of stone to build the structure of the household of faith around. I'll give you a few more verses. Uh, Psalm 118, 22 and 23 is that verse that is repeated in the New Testament a number of times. But it says this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. All right? A couple of things on that. It's, the, it's the, the, the stone that the builders rejected. Well, who would the builders be? It's the guys that are in charge. And the guys that are in charge have said, that stone is not worthy. We don't want that one. And he's saying, while the builders, the guys in charge, have rejected this stone, God has made that stone the cornerstone. And it says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And the idea of it being marvelous is not, oh, that's marvelous, right? Oh, delicious. That's wonderful, marvelous, right? It's not just, it's not just kind of a superlative thrown out there that we just kind of like it. Marvelous means that it is miraculous. It is supernatural. This is unexpected and something that only God can do. Well, Jesus picks up on that in Matthew 21, 41, and he says to them, right, or they said to him, he will put those wretches in a miserable death and let out the vineyard, et cetera, et cetera. And Jesus says, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord quotes that in reference to what is to come in terms of what he will become. And in Acts 4, verses 11 to 12, explicitly Peter is preaching, and he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. See, he's, he's actually preaching a sermon based on Psalm 118, 22, right? He was the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The word of God in the ministry of the apostles and the prophets, that was the foundation. That's what the church was built upon. But the chief cornerstone, if you think about it, the testing stone, the stone that is at the very center, that is the basis by which we measure out this structure, that is Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. So isn't that funny? It's kind of like the ministry of the word of God to the apostles and prophets and the very word of God, Jesus Christ, the word. That's our foundation and that's our cornerstone. So this is how, this is how the foundation is laid, the foundation of God's household. It is miraculous, it is supernatural, it is revelatory, and it's found specifically and intentionally in the per person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus himself, you notice that doubling up of emphasis by putting in that extra pronoun? You don't have to put in himself. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone is sufficient to say what you want to say, but saying Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, doubly emphasize that there is no other cornerstone. There is no other rock that has built this. So we have the transition of us from outsiders to becoming God's children. The foundation of God's household in terms of the word of God being the basis of it all. And then we have the making of, God, of God's dwelling in this structure, which is his temple. Look back at uh, verse 21 again. In whom the whole structure, talking about in Christ, the whole structure has been joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in almost parallel ways, verse 22 says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Look at verse 21 first. We are being joined, right, into a new temple. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. It is being joined together, and I know that's a mouthful, because this is, this is a present passive participle. Present tense suggesting that it is a continual 
continual process that continues on even now and passive in the sense that we don't build God's church. We are built into his church. It is being done to us. It's as if we are like little stones or bricks and God is building his temple by placing us together. And he's doing it all the while as the ages go on, building into us this household of faith, this family members only kind of, you know, um, rich heritage of us becoming then part of the temple that he is building all around us. We are joined together, being joined together, passively being built into This which is the temple of God. There is no Jewish temple in Jerusalem right now, right? It's been destroyed, and right now there is the Dome of the Rock, uh, um, um, a huge mosque that is built on top of the alleged site. And that is on purpose so that the Muslims can keep the Jewish people from rebuilding their Jewish temple, right? That temple is gone, but the, the, the temple that is God's temple, God's dwelling place for God, that according to scripture, is a new temple that is built on the fact that you are part of it, that the redeemed are joined together. We have been joined together. And when it says joined together, if there's a subtle difference between that and what he's going to say in verse 22, I think we are being joined together one to another to the cornerstone. All right, that's the first part of the 21. In whom the home structure, in whom? In Christ. This whole structure is being joined together. There is a foundation and a cornerstone. And upon that cornerstone, we are rock by rock, soul by soul. We are knit together into being part of this holy temple. The word is the foundation of the building. Christ is the chief cornerstone. And we're the building blocks. We, we literally make up the temple of God. First Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, As you come to him... Listen, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, we are all of us presently, right? Present tense. Passively, meaning that it has been done unto us, we are built in. The church is under construction and you are part of its component parts. See, we're not just saying you belong here because we like you. We're saying you belong here because you're an essential component of what makes this temple, what makes this new dwelling place of God. It's an interesting way for Paul to kind of guide a bunch of Gentiles to think rightly about their relationship to one another in the church. All right? Because Gentiles, when they think about temple, what would they think about? Well, they're pagan temples, you know? Um, the, the temple of Artemis or the temple of Zeus or whatever else temple they have, like really big old colonnades, right? Nice, beautiful structures, white marble. And then you go and you sacrifice things. You know, you do weird stuff and you have weird kind of pagan worship rites, right? That's what they might think of. But his whole point is all of that, whether it's that pagan worship that you leave behind or even it's the Jerusalem temple that you leave behind, this is, the new, this is the new place of worship. This is how we connect to God, in, not just in fellowship with one, one another, but in loving our God and serving him together. We are interlaced one to another to become the place of his ministry, to become the place of not just his dwelling, that's the next part, but where all of his ministry takes place. It begins and ends in the church. And church, let me remind you again, you're not just an individual stone, right? God's not saved you as an individual living stone, and you go out there, you do your own thing. The whole point of Ephesians 2, in talking about the gospel, has rescued us from death to life, right? And now he's built us together into one another. Jews and Gentiles, enemies and strangers and people that are weird, all brought together. The reason why he has done that is to make this new temple, a new place of ministry where every person has their part. And so other imageries like the body of Christ throughout all of scripture keeps emphasizing how every person, every redeemed soul is connected to every other redeemed soul. That's become your sin affects us as a whole, right? Let's come, your, your repentance affects us as a whole, right? 
You, you growing in Christ affects us as a whole, or you not growing in Christ begins to affect us as a whole because we are, right? We are united, joined together. That's the term. It's a weird term to say that we are somehow kind of built into each other, but that's the way that Scripture wants to describe what it means to be part of God's people growing, presently growing, under construction into a holy temple in the Lord. Well, like I said, if there's a subtle difference, being joined into a new temple, that's that first part in verse 21, then almost a, almost a repeated thing in verse 22, but I think with a subtle change. In him, it's the same terminology. In fact, in the Greek, it's, it's, the, it's the exact same clause. In whom, in verse 21, in whom, here in verse 22, it's the same, but they translate it in him, which is understandable. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Don't let by the Spirit trip you up um, because uh, that's what's been said from the very beginning. Um, if you recall that, uh, um, that uh, in our context, right, uh, it is already spoken of how the Spirit has done that ministry to bring us close. If you look back to verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far off, peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access Right? We both have access in one spirit um, to the Father. In other words, it is the Spirit's indwelling ministry that is concerned here with, with, uh, with how God comes to dwell in this place. But what I would emphasize, one, in verse 22, is that in Him you are also being built together. The term, and our English captures this well, the first term, being joined together, right, on the cornerstone, suggests that we are all interconnected and tied down to the rock, to the, to the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. Here, even though that's still true, because it's in him you're also being built together, in him you are being built together, the emphasis seems to be that we are interlocked, that it's not just that we are built upon Jesus and we all kind of hang out together, but we are all locked together. You know, there's an interesting phenomenon if you watch like the really little kids, the toddlers, right? When they're really young, and I forget the age because, you know, the baby in our house is like 14 years old. That's been a long time since he's been a little baby. But when they're little babies, right, their social kind of, their social play is kind of trip, right? Like, like they talk about like, I think they call it parallel play. I don't know what they call it now. They probably have some weird name for it, right? But like the little babies, you put them in the little nursery and you give them some toys and they might, you know, they might play with their Legos, look at the other guy and he's playing with his Legos and they kind of look at it. Look at that dude, look at his Legos, look at my Legos and you keep playing with your Legos. And then you look over, it's called parallel play. They don't interact. They just are literally side by side, right? They do, I do my thing, you do your thing. We look at each other occasionally, that's that. And as they grow, as they mature over the months, they parallel play. I'm sorry, they, they move from parallel play to interactive play. This is when they start stealing the other guy's Legos, right? Sin creeps in, what can we do, right? Like, but, right, like, I'm going to take your Legos because I got Legos and I want more Legos, right? It's like, oh, I don't have any Legos. I'm going to take your Legos. I'm going to eat your Legos, right? Like, all kinds of craziness breaks out. But the idea, though, is, is that as they mature, they interact one to another, it is, it is not just parallel. I play, you play, and we just kind of look at each other, and we happen to be next to each other. We now start to interact. We interact play. And you get what I'm saying with this. There's a subtle, I think, kind of shift in terms that as this is reiterated to say that we are, in a lot of ways, we are joined together next to each other on the person of Christ and his ministry into a holy temple. But so that we understand we are being built together. Right? One thing about you know, building something out of bricks is that is a very foolish human being, right? That builds like all the bricks straight up and then all the next bricks straight up. That never happens. You know why? Because then they're easily broken. What you do is you put one brick here, right? If this is brick, brick, then you put the other brick in between. And so you notice that how bricks are kind of interlaced that way? This is the idea. We are interlaced, we are meant to be codependent in, the, in a good and excellent way. We are meant to, to depend upon one another, to lean into one another. We are built together into each other. And that's where God dwells, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In the same way that God takes up residence in the tabernacle in the wilderness in Exodus 40, his glory comes down. 
And later on, in like 1 Kings 8, they build the Jerusalem temple and his glory comes in. Now, by his Holy Spirit, he makes the body of Christ, the church, his actual residence. He dwells among us. That is a tremendous statement. And the point is that we together, together in unison and in unity, in cooperation, we have God dwelling among us. The point that I think we want to want to cap, capture with all of this, you know, belonging to God's household is about recognizing that you belong here. But what belonging here means is that together, as we connect with each other, as we fellowship, minister together, it means that we, all of us together, corporately, we get God. You get it? This is not small language. This is not just, you know, God would like you guys to get along, and he'll be right back. This is you are being built together, and God is desiring to dwell right there with you. We, we are not just, you know what I mean? We're not the church doing the best we can in our human, human limitations, you know, just kind of getting by. And we hope that God is pleased from some distant, you know, accounting room where he just kind of goes, okay, that church is okay. He dwells with us. We get him. That's the beauty of this language, right? It reminds me of Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, and Jesus begins to speak. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about the church. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I, had never, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been perfect any longer after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. As I have already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for you not joining it if you are the Lord's nor need your own faults keep you back. For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they are saved are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for God's sheep, the home for Christ's family. This is what it means that we belong to God's household in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time in the scriptures and ask for our encouragements, Lord, for probably difficult weeks or maybe blessedly calm ones or whatever our circumstances may have brought to us. Lord, we trust that you are in it all. And Lord, we ask for a blessing, especially upon our VBS kids, that they would continue to be nurtured and raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord in the knowledge of the things of Christ and the gospel, and that you, Lord, would make yourself known to these little hearts, that they might spend much of their life worshiping and honoring Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We praise you for all your grace to us. You are sufficient. Help us to believe it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.